Let's go ahead and get into the word together today. We've been going through 1 Thessalonians. Greg faithfully took us through the first eight verses of uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 last week. And thank you uh, for, for allowing me to be free to go back to uh, our sending church, my home church, before we started redemption last week. It was great to be at Harvest and to get to see a lot of uh, friendly faces there. But I was really encouraged to hear the responses to Greg's message last week and how well he handled the word. So today we'll pick it up in chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 9 through 12. And we're going to talk about loving Jesus' church. Let's read 9 through 12 together, then we'll pray. Paul says to the Thessalonians, about brotherly love, you don't need me to write you because you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. In fact, you are doing this toward all the brothers and sisters in the entire region of Macedonia. But we encourage you, brothers and sisters, to do this even more, to seek to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you so that you may behave properly in the presence of outsiders and not be dependent upon anyone. Let's pray as we look at this word together. Father in heaven, your word is truth. It is eternal truth. It is not a truth that changes. It is not a truth that needs updated. It is your word from eternity past into eternity future, reliable, living and active and able to instruct us and able to empower us to live lives that please and honor you. And so today I pray that it would have that effect, that our hearts be pierced, that our, that our allegiances to things of this world be challenged, and that we would grow in our love for your precious church. Father, give us open minds and open hearts and give us a willingness to obey as we look at your word together, for it's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. So if you have the handout in front of you, let's go ahead and fill in some of the blanks. I want to I really dig into this concept of what it means to, to love Jesus' church and, and, and how, in fact, we're called, we are commanded to love the church. The first thing that you'll see on here is that you can't obey Jesus without loving the church. That's a bold place to start. A lot of people today would disagree with that. Maybe some of you came here today and you would disagree with that. Well, I hope that I can convince you, not by, not by my own thoughts or convictions, but from the word of God, that in order to obey Jesus and in order, in order to be a faithful Christian, you must love Jesus' church. Paul gets to this point in his letter where he's going to address a number of spiritual issues within the church of Thessalonica. We saw last week that he addressed the idea of personal sanctification, especially in the area of sexual immorality and how we ought to respond to the gospel in that way. Here he wants to talk about brotherly love. He's going to go on in the future. We'll see next week as he talks about how we ought to think about those who have died and gone on before us in the faith. He's going to get into the return of the Lord and how we should be prepared for that. But today we want to look at what he describes as Brotherly love. The, the Greek word for this is actually Philadelphia. 
You've heard Philadelphia called the city of brotherly love. If you've been to Philadelphia, you know it's anything but the city of brotherly love. (laughs) But that's how it was originally named and established and founded. He says about Philadelphia, about brotherly love, you don't need me to write you because you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. It appears is what Paul is referencing here is the literal collected teachings of Jesus. So here we are just a couple of decades after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. And as the, the disciples and the apostles are going throughout the world, establishing churches, preaching the gospel of Jesus, who had never heard of this man Jesus, they took with them teaching, teaching that, that would have been collected from the apostles that, who had wrote down the words of Jesus. And we could prob, pro, it's probably safely to presume here that Paul, while he was with the church in Thessalonica for a short period of time, establishing them in the faith, teaching them what the gospel is, would have passed on to them many of the sayings and teachings of Jesus. And if you were with us when we went through the gospel of John a few months ago, you know that from like chapter 13 through the next few chapters, Jesus strongly emphasized in his, his final couple of days with his disciples, strongly emphasized this idea that he wants us to love one another. It's one of Jesus' main teachings as he comes, as he approaches his death on the cross. What does he want to leave his disciples with? Love one another. By this, others will know that you're my disciples, that you love one another. He, he, he's just drilling this home with them. You must love one another. So what has happened to Jesus' church? Why do we so often fail to exemplify what Jesus deemed a primary command, what Jesus deemed to be of such great importance? Why are there so many so-called Christians walking around today saying, I love Jesus, I just don't love the church? I love Jesus, I just, I just don't feel called to be part of one specific church. How is that loving one another? How is that loving Jesus' church? Let's look specifically at John chapter 13, verse 34 together. Many examples of this. In this passage, like I said, if you start in John 13 and you you go through the next couple of chapters, you'll see many examples of Jesus calling his disciples to love one another. But let's specifically look at verse 34. Jesus says, I give you a new command. Love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Jesus is pretty clear that he wants us as Christ followers to love the church. And that's why I say you can't obey Jesus and not love the church. And and, and I know there's people that want to make arguments. Well, I'm not talking about 
I'm not talking about the regular people, the rank and file members of the church. I'm talking about the church as an organization or the, the church as some big scary structure. And, and I want to argue you can't make that distinction. There's just the church. There's just the people of God. There, the, the idea that, that we can separate one from another it just doesn't work. It doesn't fit. It, it's, it's not in line with Scripture. Wherever the people of God are, that's the church. So how can we obey Jesus without loving the church? The New Testament describes, we went through this. This, by the way, I planned introducing new members completely apart from having any idea what we were going to be preaching today, but I love the way they align. Because we teach in the new members class that, that Jesus in the New Testament defines his church with three very important words. Blood, bride, and body. Jesus tells us, or the New Testament tells us, that the church was bought with the blood of Jesus, that she is considered his bride, and that he identifies the church as his own body. Let's look at 1 Peter chapter 1. This one won't be on the screen, I apologize. As those of you that tend here regularly know I often add, add scriptures after I've turned in my notes. I apologize, it's inconvenient for everybody but me, so we're just going to keep doing it that way. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> but, for, but you could write this down, 1 Peter 1. Verses 18 and 19 says this, for you know, this is, this is Peter, another one of the apostles, speaking to the church. He says, for you know that you, meaning the church, were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. How, how did Jesus purchase his church? Did he use money? Did he use cryptocurrency? You know, Elon Musk has, of course, in all the headlines today, he, he just bought Twitter for, what, like $44 billion? And I think all of us are going, how do you get $44 billion? <laughs> like, is, is he counting it out? Like, what's going on? And then I saw that he sold, like, $8 billion worth of his Tesla stock or something. Like, I, I can't even get my head around how this currency is being moved around, but there's, there's all these different ways of purchasing things that are available to us today. And all of them pale in comparison with the currency with which Jesus purchased his church. You're not bought with perishable things like silver or gold, which would have been the most valuable things that they could identify at the time, but with the precious blood of Christ. Jesus bought the church. He bought our salvation with his own blood. The most valuable thing in the universe is the life of Jesus, the Son of God, who, though sinless, died in our place. You could not pay a higher price. 
There's, there's just not enough gold, silver, U.S. dollars, euros, Dogecoin, Bitcoin. What, there's just not enough currency in the world to, to compare to the price with which Jesus bought his church. He bought her with his own blood. What Peter says, what Peter calls the precious blood of Christ. So the church is bought with Jesus' blood. It's identified as his bride. If you want to look at this later, I'm not going to look these verses up now, but let me give you a couple of references that you can look at. If you want to, if you want to see where the church is called his bride, Revelation 19, verses 6 through 8. Revelation 19, 6 through 8, and then Ephesians 5. In Ephesians 5, if you go to 25 to 32, which is a really interesting passage about husbands and wives and how Paul says, I'm actually talking about the church, um, but he calls the church his bride, uh, again, in Ephesians 5, 25 to 32. As his bride, Jesus no doubt loves the church. Doesn't it seem like a good idea to love what Jesus loves? If you want to obey him, if you want to live a life pleasing to him, if you want to be like him, one way of of growing in that is to love what he loves. He loves the church. She is his bride. She is the one thing from this world that he will redeem and treasure for eternity. The Bible tells us that the earth and the heavens are going to pass away. That they're going to be replaced by a new earth and new heavens. The one thing that Jesus will salvage from all of this, the one thing that Jesus will ensure lasts throughout eternity is his bride. His bride. He's preparing eternity. He's preparing a place for his bride to live with him forever. That's what he's doing. Because he loves her. Because he loves us. We already saw, I read earlier, 1 Corinthians 12, but that's the reference for body that you might want to write down. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 to 27. Jesus identifies through the Apostle Paul that the body of the body of Christ is all believers everywhere, the church. And the church find there's there's so let me be clear about this. There's the universal church. There's the church that's made up of every person who has who has been saved by Christ from from you know the beginning of time until now and going forward everybody every all believers are part of the universal church but the universal church finds itself represented through local expressions like redemption church or like first baptist church of wherever you know there's all of these local expressions of the universal church those local expressions are where we experience and encounter and love and build up the universal church we we are we are most i'd say we we're, we're most able to love jesus's church the way he wants us to when we identify and associate with and commit to a local church. 
And that doesn't have to be redemption. I, I, I've told people before, if this is not the church that, that you want to give yourself to, if this is not the church that you think God is calling you to, then by all means, find the church that is, but find a church. Find a church that, let's be honest, you're never gonna find a church that's just everything you ever want a church to be. There's always gonna be things that you don't like or that you disagree with or that you would do differently. Um, that's, that's my experience, and I'm the pastor here. <laughs> you know, so there's always going to be those things. It's not about any one of us getting our way and everything. It's not about our, our personal preferences. It's about what has God called us collectively to, and you, you are responsible to find a church that you will give your life to and that you will serve and that you will plug in and you will give to in every way. The church is worthy of that. It was bought with Jesus' blood. It is his bride and it is his body. Of course, people have been hurt by the church. People have been hurt by everything that has ever existed. There is, there, there is no institution. There is no organization. There is no company that has that has existed that has not in some way shape or form hurt someone of course people get hurt in the church it's full of people it's full of other sinners that doesn't mean we don't value it that we don't love it and that we don't commit to it take my blind allegiance to taco bell as an example Taco Bell will hurt you like no other chain. <laughs> they never get the orders right. They're, they're always messing things up. But I don't protest and say, that's it. I hate, oh, I keep going back. I love Taco Bell. <laughs> We're not called to a perfect church. It doesn't exist. And if you did find a perfect church, as the saying goes, if you started attending there, it would no longer be perfect. <laughs> but we are called to the bride that Jesus loves. We are called to be members of his body. We are called to cherish what was purchased with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. In Thessalonica, this, this letter that we're, that we're studying and that we're reading through week week in and week out here. And Thessalonica, joining the body of Christ for, for many would have been social suicide. It wasn't a popular thing to join the church at Thessalonica. That meant persecution. That might mean, you, it, for some, it meant they would have lost their jobs. For others, it meant that their family would have disowned them. If you were in some sort of esteemed position within the community, choosing to join the church could have caused you to lose that social status and therefore, it was all the more important for them to love each other well. Imagine, imagine if, if that's the way it was for us today. And for some of us, th some, some of this sort of comes home to us. For some of us, we do experience, we've committed ourselves to church. And, you know, some of us were raised perhaps in a different tradition, that, a, a different Christian tradition that does not accept the tradition that you're now a part of. Some of us were, were just raised by secular families that really hate the idea of anyone in their family becoming religious 
or, or getting involved in a church. That was what was happening in Thessalonica. There was people giving up things that were very valuable in their lives to become a part of the body of Christ because they saw it as more valuable. So how, how important was it for them to love each other well? When you join the body of Christ, in, in a sense, you're joining a, a new family. You're gaining brothers and sisters in Christ. This, this popular idea that one can become a Christian but choose not to associate with the church is nothing but a form of disobedience to the commands of Scripture. I was hanging out with some other pastors in an event this week, and one of the pastors from out in Youngstown was telling me he has a a college ministry on Youngstown State University campus, and he was telling me about one of the girls that started coming to their fellowship and was um, giving her life to Christ and her family, and I can't remember their background. Um, I do remember their background, but I won't say it because it might offend some people here, but it starts with a C. And uh, their family was very against the idea of her becoming a part of this Christian group. And they told her, if you're gonna, if you're gonna go to those gatherings, you can't do it in our car. And so the car that they had given her to use to go back and forth to school and to get the classes and everything, they said, you're not allowed to use it to go to these Christian gatherings. She was encountering a cost. She was, she was facing rejection from her family. And they were, say, they were drawing a line and they were saying, no, if you want to be a part of that, then we won't support it in any way, shape, or form. Some of us, you know, we we get involved in church and we grow in our faith and people around us celebrate. But for many of us, it's resistance. For many of us to to commit ourselves to the body of Christ comes at a cost in other relationships. How, How important it is for us to love one another. How important it is for us to care for those among us. Let's look at a couple more things on the handout. The next one is this. Our love for Jesus' church should overflow to believers everywhere. Our love for Jesus' church should overflow to believers everywhere. Paul takes this command to love one another, this command about brotherly love, and he commends them for how well they're doing. He lets them know, hey, this is an area you're excelling in. People are, people are coming to faith in Thessalonica, and for many of them, it's costing them something in society, but, but God is, is making up for that in the Christian family that they are gaining. They're loving one another well. Paul commends them for this, and then he says in verse 10, he says, in fact, you, you not only are loving each other well, but you are doing this toward all the believers and sisters in the entire region of Macedonia. You remember when I, when I, had, when I did my little geography lesson a few weeks ago, um, this idea that of Macedonia was sort of a state, if we want to compare it to something that's very familiar to us. In Thessalonica was the capital city. Thessalonica uh, uh, had a population of about 100,000 people. And so there was plenty of need within the city itself. There was plenty to do there. But the Thessalonian believers had a heart not just for their city, but 
to, to support their brothers and sisters in Christ throughout the entire region of Macedonia. That's incredible. We see, we see in other places of Scripture that this, at, at the very least, was demonstrated by them giving financially to other Christians and to other churches and to the ministry. And they did this not because they were super wealthy. They did this just out of love. They weren't super wealthy. They had their own needs, but they valued the church everywhere. And so should we. Our love for Jesus' church should not just be for those that we go to church with. Our love for Jesus' church should not just be for those who are like us in a variety of ways. Our love for Jesus' church should overflow to believers everywhere. That's what, one of the things I love about Redemption's support for things like the Still City Church Planning Network that's putting on this lunch this week is we don't just, we don't just care about the people that, that, that you know, bear the name of redemption or fly that flag. We, we just care about the church. We want to be a part of strengthening the church anywhere that we have opportunity to. That's important, and that's biblical, and that's healthy. I'm always, I'm always, I'm, and, 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 you know, COVID, one of the most difficult things for me for COVID was the inability to travel and do mission trips and to take you all on mission trips. It's one of the things I love doing in my role here as pastor is planning mission trips and getting, getting you to go with me because I want you to experience the body of Christ in different places. And I want you to build friendships and build relationships with Christians who live radically different lives, who are in just a completely different context than we are because there's just something so good and so healthy and so life-giving in that. In fact, we got a team going to Juarez here in a few weeks, and I'm not able to go with them because of some prior commitments, but I'm so excited for that team to go and not only experience the joy of a mission trip and the challenges of a mission trip, but to build friendships with people that I know and love and, and cherish and value. I can't wait for them to go. I can't wait for them to come back and, and to tell me the stories about, you know, what they did with Pastor Mario and, and, and the different brothers and sisters that are there in Juarez that we've built relationships with over the years. And so I want to encourage you, keep an open mind about mission trips. I know a lot of people say, well, I'll never do that. I'll never, that's, that's, that's not something I'm interested in. Well, one of the reasons why I think it's worth considering is this opportunity to just build a broader relationship with the body of Christ, to gain friends, to gain friends in different countries and in different cultures, and to appreciate. There are, there are Christians in Malawi, Africa, praying for Redemption Church. There, there are Christians in different parts of the world. I hear from them all the time. I hear from our brothers and sisters down in Juarez that we're praying for you and we're praying for redemption. I hear from our brothers and sisters in Malawi, we're praying for you, we're praying for redemption. It's, inc it's incredible to, to know that, that we're not just limited to the relationships that we build in this room, but that the body of Christ is universal. And our love for Jesus' church should overflow to believers everywhere. And that's why we do things like the wells that we've been drilling this year, that we've been sponsoring uh, to, to have drilled. Those are our brothers and sisters. We love them. We want them to be well. We, 
No pun intended. That was just weird. We want, we want to see them grow in Christ and grow in their witness. Make it a, be intentional about this. Make it a point to develop relationships with Christians in other places. And make it a point to care, not just about how things are going here at Redemption, but how things are going in the church in general. All right, we've got two more. Does anybody have the time? Because my watch died. 57. All right, cool. Thank you. Now let's talk about where the, 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 let's make a little transition here on these last two. I've been making the case that we should love the church. And now Paul points, he commends them in these things, but then he points them to a couple areas of potential growth. And I want to approach it the same way. Uh, Hopefully I'm Hopefully I'm convincing you of the need to love the church, but let's talk about two specific areas where we could all grow in our love for the church. The next thing on the handout is this. Growing in love for Jesus' church will make us consider our witness among outsiders. I'll explain that, but for now, just get it jotted down. It'll make us consider our witness among outsiders. These last couple of verses, the second part of, of verse 10 through verse 12, are going are gonna to drive us towards these last two points. Paul says in verse 10, but we encourage you, brothers and sisters, to do this even more. So Paul commends them in their love for the church, but he, he also sees the need that they grow in this. Do this even more to seek to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, so that you may ha- so that you may behave properly in the presence of outsiders and not be dependent upon anyone. Paul uh, uh, he goes after two issues at the same time. One, which is which is kind of summed up in these commands, the first two in, in, in verse eleven: seek to lead a quiet life and to mind your own business. I. I I believe those two go together and that they are related to what he says in verse 12, that you may behave properly in the presence of outsiders. And and then the second command is to work with your own hands, which coincides with the end of verse 12 and not be dependent upon anyone. This This is what he instructs them to do. So growing in love for Jesus' church will make us consider our witness among outsiders. And Paul specifically points them to, in order to mind, in order to tend to your witness among outsiders, do these two things. Seek to lead a quiet life and mind your own business. Now, I don't like to... uh, I don't like to disagree with our English translations because our English translations are phenomenal. And if, if anybody's going to disagree with the scholars who worked on these projects, it certainly shouldn't be me. However, in this one instance, I think the, the phrase to mind your own business has very strong implications to us. We use that in such a negative sense. We use that to tell people to butt out. Mind your own business. I don't think that is the intention here, and there's a lot of other English translations that reflect perhaps a different intention. And if you have the CSB, you might even notice a footnote that says literally this is 
should be translated, practice one's own things. So perhaps a better, better translation would be something along those lines. To seek to lead a quiet life and to do your own stuff. Take, focus on your things. Don't, don't get so obsessed with what everybody else is worked up over. I think that this for us has a lot of implications for the political climate that we find ourselves in. And that's not something we talk about a ton here from the pulpit of the, the current politics and stuff like that because there's, it often leads you sort of down a dead-end street that doesn't produce faith or, or love. And I think that Paul sets a pretty good example here. In a climate where there's all of these hot-button issues, one of the questions that we as Christians have to wrestle with is how much do we get involved in politics? How much do we seek to influence uh, the, the outcome of these decisions? And how much do we just say, you know what, I'm going to mind my own business and I'm going to lead a faithful life? And I think Paul here, I'm not saying he would apply this to every circumstance because I do think there are up, there are times when we need to speak up and make our voices be heard on certain issues, and we should we should we're called to be salt and light, and that means to preserve what is good in our world. And so there are times when we are to be active and we are to be involved, but there are also times when the best thing that we can do for our witness is take care of our own lives. How often do you see somebody? speaking up loudly about an issue that bothers them, but you know that their own life is a personal disaster. And you're like, maybe you should just take care of your own stuff. <laughs> I, think, I think Paul's saying, pointing us to something along those lines. Our witness isn't so much contingent upon what we're against as much as it is contingent upon us living and leading faithful lives and being responsible for ourselves and, and, and for our, our own living before we go out and try to tell somebody else how they should live their life. As we, as we grow in our, and what does this have to do with the church and loving the church? Well, Paul's saying, if you want to love the church, love the church in this way. Consider your witness among outsiders and get your stuff together and lead a faithful life. That for that is your witness. And then the other one that goes right along with this in these verses, the last thing you'll see on the handout, growing in love for Jesus' church will make us take responsibility for our own needs. He wrote this letter in a culture that was had some similarities to ours, but also some differences, in specifically in how government worked and taxation and, um, you know, sort of like social programs and things that, that helped people who were, you know, we, we, today we talk about people living below the poverty line and they, you know, we, we, we give resources to help those people live what we would say is an acceptable standard of living and stuff. Well, there was, that was done a, a, li, a little bit differently. It was done a lot differently then. And there was, this, there was this idea of patronage where people who had wealth were 
were sort of given that responsibility to serve as patrons to those who did not have. And they would personally take, take care of them and use their finances, use their money to give to people who were in need, right? And so I'm not sure how formal that system was, but that was what Paul is speaking to. He says, if you, if you are growing in love for Jesus' church, then you will take responsibility for your own needs because what was happening in any system of patronage Human sinfulness comes into play, and whether it's you know welfare in the 21st century in America, or it's this this concept of patronage in the first uh, in the first century in the Roman Empire, human sinfulness comes into play, and people who are receiving something for nothing inevitably start to say, "Well, then you know I kind of like this. Why should I try to work harder, or why should I try to?" take care of my own needs if somebody else is going to take care of them for me. And Paul directly ties that attitude to one's love for the church and one's desire to see the witness of the church be effective. He says, I'm kind of picking up in the middle of this here, in the middle of verse 11, He commands them to work with your own hands as we commanded you so that you may behave properly in the presence of outsiders and not be dependent on anyone. Now, other places in Paul's letter, he instructs instructs the church to take care of people who cannot take care of themselves. He instructs the church to take care of widows and orphans and to ensure that nobody among them is in need. Okay, so don't forget that. This isn't meant to be guilt or condemnation upon somebody who has true need and and must be dependent upon others. But for those of us who are able to, we need to take responsibility for our own needs. We need to work hard. It's part of your Christian witness. And it's part of an expression for your love for the church to work hard to supply for your needs and the needs of your family. We are called to be responsible for the needs that we have in our lives. And as much as it is up to us, ensure that we are not dependent upon anyone. Interesting to find that in this section where Paul's talking about love for the church, isn't it? But it's one of the ways he commands them to grow. It's one of the ways, he says, you guys are brotherly love, you guys are killing it. But there's there's still people among you who are, way too concerned about what's happening in culture at large when what they really need to do is focus on living faithful lives and handling their own business. And there's also people among you who are, who are just kind of coasting and living dependent upon somebody else when what they really need to do is, is work and, and take care of their own needs. And he says those two things, are if you respond to those, that's an expression of your growth in love for Jesus' church in your desire to be a faithful witness to the watching world. And I think those are relevant to us. I think we ought to seek to do the same thing. Let's be careful about how we present ourselves to the watching world when it comes to hot button issues and political issues. And, you know, we get into these debates online and everything. And some of that's necessary. Some of that might even be fruitful, but, but I think a lot of it isn't. A lot of it is us worried too much about somebody else's business when we need to handle our own, our own lives. And at the same time, 
Some of us are just far too content to coast and depend upon others, whether that be the government or whether that be people within the church or whether, you know, or, or, and, and meanwhile, there are people who have real needs. There are people who can't care for themselves in this way. And, and, and we're wasting effort and resources uh, trying to, to put band-aids on situations where people really just need to, to get their stuff together and take responsibility so that we can focus on caring for the people who are truly in need. That's what it means to love Jesus' church. Take care of your own affairs. Not be dependent on anyone as much as it is up to you. And in this way, present a faithful witness of the gospel. So let me ask you to respond. The question that I want to end on as we consider all of this in 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 through 12, is do you love the church? And do you love the church in a way that was just described? And this isn't everything that it means to love the church, but are you, are you, are you hitting these marks? Is your love, is your, does your love for the church reflect the price that Jesus, has pay, Jesus paid for his church? Does it reflect the value that Jesus places on the church? Does your love for the church reflect this concept that Jesus considers us his bride and his body? Or do you just love the church when the church is lovely? And if you love the church, do you love, does your love for the church, does it overflow to believers everywhere? Do you love not just our church, but the church. And how are you expressing that? And then if you are willing to take the challenge to grow, do you love the church by living a faithful life? A faithful life where you ensure that your own affairs are in order and you ensure that you are taking responsibility for your needs first so that you're not dependent upon others. Do you love the church?